There was a headline in the Associated Press, September 12, 1988. It said, Thousands prepare for the prelude to Christ's second coming. The article reads, Scores of, scores of religious fundamentalists are heeding an author's predictions that a prelude to Christ's second coming is near and some are selling their worldly goods to prepare for the end of the world. The rapture is expected to strike before sunset Tuesday, according to the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It was written by a former NASA rocket engineer he used mathematical calculations, according to the article, and biblical interpretations to pinpoint the event to the 48 hours of this year's Jewish New Year, 40 years and 120 days after Israel became a nation on May 14, 1948. According to his book, millions of the faithful will be suddenly, silently called to heaven this week and global results will follow. It goes on to say, in West Virginia, a minister reported a baptism boom, and in Ohio, a retired firefighter spent $3,700 for a newspaper ad to tell people that Jesus Christ will return this week. There was a television station that reported that several residents last week put their cars and boats up to sale in anticipation of the event. A pastor said that the event had created a revival at his church with attendance doubling in recent weeks. It concludes, the Lord is coming back. I'm looking at it about any time now, said Jerry McLam of Coates, North Carolina. He said he and his workers at his automobile engine shop had rushed to complete customers' orders last week, possibly their last. Now, I was in Washington, D.C. the week before this date as part of a group of Christian law students for an unrelated event, but I remember vividly seeing the large bus parked near the Capitol with the 88 reasons painted on the side, um, this bus belonging to the author of the book. Now, at the time, though I was not new to the faith, I was not terribly well taught at the time, and during all the hype, though I hadn't gone crazy, because I remember this well, and maybe some of you do also, I hadn't gone crazy selling my stuff or handing out these books. But when I came face to face with this bus in Washington, D.C., I, I had to wonder, could it be? Now, why do movements like this get any traction at all? Well, it's because the event at which it focuses is a real event that really will happen. It is true, the Lord is coming back. Peter calls it the end of all things, and he says, it is near. So let's see what Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to his readers and thus to us. 1 Peter 1, verse, or chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, I'm sorry. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. 
Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus says the word of the Lord. The end of all things is near. Now, in a Tom Pennington fashion, we could, if we chose, to just camp here for the whole hour on this verse. It's not even a whole verse. It's like a third of a verse. It's seven words. The end of all things is near. But because I'm not Tom, and we've got a schedule to keep in Bereans, and I've got a place I need to end by the end of this hour, we will move on and begin The end is near. What does Peter mean by the end is near? Well, the Greek word is telos. It can mean the point of time marking the end of a duration, a termination, a cessation. But as it is used here, it means fulfillment, a purpose attained, a goal achieved. We could call it the consummation of all things. And it is near the greek word for near igizo to make near to come near approaching we could call it imminence imminence of what of the lord's return writing about this imminence john macarthur says just prior to his ascension jesus told his disciples it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father is fixed by his own authority even though God wants believers to focus on the hope of Christ's return, he has not chosen to reveal its exact time. If they knew the specific day of the Lord's return, believers could lose motivation and become complacent. Or if they knew it was near, they'd be engaged in frenzied, panicked activity as the day approached, like in the 88 reasons why he, the Lord was coming in 88. That could be characterized as a frenzy. MacArthur continues, Imminence eliminates both extremes so all Christians throughout the history of the church can live with biblically balanced expectancy. MacArthur continues, Living with the realization that the first feature of the Lord's return, the rapture of the church, is near, it energizes believers for holy living. The Apostle John wrote, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Peter understands greatly that imminence should produce godliness. And in chapter 4, this is not the first time that Peter addresses this. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter started his letter with this thought, and now he's re-emphasizing it here in chapter 4. Indeed, the consummation is approaching. But it's not just Peter, but it's a constant theme in the New Testament. James talks of this in James chapter 5, starting with verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until when? Until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Why? Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The author of Hebrews has this theme, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more until when? As you see the day drawing near. Jesus spoke of this, Luke 12, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that we may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Peter's context for this entire book is standing firm through suffering. So for our time today, according to Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how do men and women act who are waiting for the return of the Master? Peter, having stated succinctly that the Lord's return for His church is imminent, he addresses five pursuits on which believers should be focused. Five activities which should characterize us. The end of all things is near... So, we should think. Verse 7 of our text, Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sound judgment, we could call it steady in mind. According to one lexicon, it's to have understanding about practical matters and thus be able to act sensibly. One author says it sees what things are important and what is not. It's not swept away by sudden and transitory enthusiasms. It's prone neither to unbalanced fanaticism nor to unrealizing indifference. 
It is only when we see the affairs of earth in the light of eternity that we see them in their proper proportions. It is when God is given his proper place that everything takes its proper place. Romans 12.3 says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. This is saying that we need to put off pride, but rather have sound judgment. Pride is an enemy of sound judgment. Besides sound judgment, we should be of sober spirit. We could call it sober in mind. This is not how you are perceptive to the things that are important, but according to the lexicon, to be in control of one's thought processes and thus not be in danger of irrational thinking. It's to be well composed in mind. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 1, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, their destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and, our word, sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. Peter had earlier encouraged his readers to be sober in spirit. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now when we talk about soberness, we're not talking about a, a gloominess or a joy, joylessness. And I'm thankful for that. It would really put a damper on my emceeing if I had to be sober and joyless in that way. But what it is, it's a composure of mind as it relates to time and eternity. Yes, to have sound judgment and be sober in spirit is to think right. And why do we need to do this? For the purpose of prayer, verse 7 says. You see, if you don't think right, you can't pray right. As one commentator said, to learn to pray only when we take life so wisely and seriously that we begin to say in all things, thy will be done. 
Prayer is the gateway of all of heaven's spiritual resources. But we can't pray properly if our minds are unstable. If they're unstable due to worldly pursuits. If they're unstable due to ignorance of divine truth. If they're unstable due to indifference to divine purposes. But thinking correctly, we can have great confidence in approaching the throne of grace. Hebrews 10, 21. And since we have a great high priest, or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with water. Also 1 John five fourteen. This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So yes, we pray. We can pray following examples. I love the examples of following the, uh, of the Lord's Prayer. Right? That's a, a great guide. Our Father who art in heaven. Sometimes I never get past that. Right? Our Father. Contemplate that. Right? When we were reconciled with God, He took us from being enemies. He brought us to the table. And it would have been great if He had just left us there as friends. He took us as enemies, brought us to the table, and made us His children. Our Father, who art in heaven. Right? Hallowed be your name. To hallow means to honor. Why do we honor his name? There's no higher name. He has no peers. You notice in Scripture that when he swears, when he's telling to tell the truth, right? He swears. We swear in court, you know. So help me God. He swears on his own name. Because there's nothing higher for him to swear upon. Hallowed be this name. We can read good prayers of those who have gone before us. Valley of Vision is a great one. If you need a starter. In the intro to the Valley of Vision, I love this statement. It says, the soul learns to pray by praying. And in a world of cares and suffering, we can pray, as Paul describes, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This be anxious for nothing, it's a command. And if it's a command, we can do it through the Lord's help. And I've come to realize that if we aren't generally in an attitude of prayer, that doesn't mean praying always, but just always ready to re-engage in prayer during the day, finish a task, right? To be prayerful as we go about our day. Because if, if I'm not in that mode, Anxiety is always nearby, right? I'm, I'm learning that if I'm not consciously praying, anxiety is 
the default. Right? Be anxious for nothing. How? But in everything by prayer and supplication. Prayer, that describes the believer's approach in general to God. Supplication emphasizes requesting an answer specifically to a need. Yeah, I love that verse. I camp there often. I invite you to as well. Another pursuit that Peter displays for us is to love. Verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. He says, above all, keep fervent your love. Above all, meaning, considering all that we just have discussed about thinking rightly, about praying, above all of that, but not an exclusion to all of that, but above all of that is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these things, but the greatest of these is love. Philippians 2, 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Colossians 3, 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And how do we do this? Peter says with a fervency. A what? A fervency. Ectines. A stretched love. A zealous love. An earnest love. You are not too cool for this kind of love. And men, I'm talking to you. And whom to love? Well, the text says to love one another. Look around. A lot of one another's in here. Sunday schools are a great context for the one another's to take place within the body of Christ. And it, it, as um, Corbett said, it's one of the reasons why we have this church, church plant, huh? no, a Sunday school plant, right, is to Get the size down just a smidge, right? It's easier to do the one another's when you know one another well enough. So that's my pitch. We're not leaving you. You're sending us. That's our story, right? <laughs> and we're thankful for it. You know, there's 59, I'm told. I didn't count them, but 59 one another's. In scripture in the New Testament and this is the first of three we'll see today to be fervent in our love for one another and Peter wants us to get this he addressed it in chapter 1 verse 22 since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart it's been said that good preaching is good reminding, right? And in a relatively short letter, Peter is bringing it up again. He wants us to get it. The point is that Christians should not merely show fervent love to one another, but rather than in view of the approaching end, they should see to it that their love 
for one another endures. Endures against what? Endures against self-seeking. Yes, it's the enemy of all commands, but particularly against love. One commentator says a fervent love demands everything a man has of mental and spiritual energy. It means loving the unlovely and the unlovable. Loving in spite of insult and injury. Loving when love is not returned. Christian love is the love which never fails and to which every atom of man's strength is directed. But we can't just muster this up ourselves. Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. You cannot love like this unless you know that you've been loved like this. By Christ himself, demonstrated in his taking the curse of sin which you have earned and placing it upon himself, bearing the penalty. Yes, indeed, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we must persevere in this love. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 8. Now, if you have a Legacy Standard Bible, you'll see the translators have this in all caps. And that's because their understanding is Peter's paraphrasing from Proverbs that says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 10, 12. Now, Peter is using it in, in this passage. And, and it's, as you can imagine, it's had some ink spilled over trying to explain what it exactly means to cover a multitude of sins. Was Peter saying that love covers and atones for one's own sin? Well, we can set that thought aside. Why? Because, beloved, there, there's no way that we can love our way out of our sins. We don't love perfectly. Ever. We sin even in our love. Not one of us has loved God perfectly. To love God with all our hearts, souls, minds. Not one of us has ever loved perfectly our neighbor as ourselves. No, we can't love our way to atonement of our own sins. And praise be that that's not the required path. The New Testament is full of references to how sins are forgiven. But we need to look no further than Peter himself. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood. As a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed thus the view that's most consistent with the rest of scripture is that when believers love one another the sins and offenses of the others are overlooked they are covered first corinthians first corinthians 13 4 
Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag. Is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. MacArthur MacArthur writes, it's self-evident that genuine love inherently tends to forgive the offenses of others. But love covers a multitude of sins. This describes believers who are overlooking in love each other's transgressions. This command to love easily flows into Peter's next admonition, which is to pursue hospitality. Verse 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. This is our second one another in our text for today. Be hospitable. This is required of elders. It's in both lists of elder qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. 1 Timothy 3, 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach. These elder qualifications aren't something you strap on when you become an elder, but these are qualifications an elder has already demonstrated, not perfectly, but in direction. But it's applicable to all of us. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And Peter tells us to do it without complaint. Now that pins most of us, some of us, all of us, like insects on a bug collector's board, right? Without complaint. Do it without complaint. Philippians 2.14 Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 1 Corinthians 10.10 Do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul was using the Israelites in his list of examples of those that grumbled. We should not do it. But regarding this request for hospitality before any of us feel we need to run out and go to the highway and pick up a hitchhiker and bring them home. Um, We need to remember the context that Peter is writing. Think of the day back then. Travel was dangerous. Lodging was dangerous. 
Thus the need to host and protect fellow believers. This was crucial as the gospel went forth and for fellowship within the church. Today travel is relatively easy. Roads are good. Hotels are pretty good, depending on how much you can afford. But the principle that we're talking about has not changed. And the heart attitude has not changed. We need to come out of our selfish shells to give and to serve others. That's still our charge today. The final pursuit with which Peter gives us in our section of text is use your gifting. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here's another verse that could take a full hour to unpack. Serving one another through these special gifts. Special gift, it's another word for spiritual gift. And the topic is a favorite in the New Testament, and it's expanded by Paul in Romans 12, 3 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 31. So if you need a hook, think the 12s when you want to look in the scripture for the mental hook on these list of gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Now we're not going to be taking a deep dive in the, the giftedness or the gifts themselves, but rather on how we are to view our responsibility with our gifts. And we're supposed to serve one another as good stewards. And Peter uses that word. So if we're going to understand it, we have to understand what is a steward. We can go to Webster's for a general de definition. One employed in a large household or estate to manage domestic concerns, such as the supervision of servants, collection of rents, keeping of accounts. Think Joseph in Potiphar's house, right? He was a steward. Potiphar brought him in and says, So Joseph found favor in his sight, became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over all his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. That's from Genesis 39. The idea of a steward. Joseph owned nothing, but he was a steward of lots, right? And we're a steward of the gifts that the Lord gives us. We don't own them. Stewards knew full well that none of the things over which he had control belonged to him. They all belonged to his master. In everything he did, he was answerable to his master, and always it was his interest he must serve, according to one commentator. According to another, the Christian must always be under the conviction that nothing he possesses of material goods or personal qualities is his own. It all belongs to God. And he must ever use what he has in the interests of God to whom he is always answerable. Now on these spiritual gifts, looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 
starting at four, it says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. This variety of gifts, giftedness from the Lord, you know, we, we need to get out of the idea that, that like we have one and it's a nice, neat package or maybe two, but still nice, neatly packaged. It's more of a, a blending. Think of a, a spiritual snowflake that each looks different, each individual or spiritual fingerprint, right? There is a, a, a mixture. There's a variety within the gifting that the Lord grants to his people. Even even here, the teachers here, we often hear, you know, you, you guys teach well, but you are each so different. And, and that is true. We, we are different. We, uh, you know, we are just gifted differently and, and whatnot. I like what Alistair Begg says. He says, be yourself but don't preach yourself, right? And that's the common theme of all of us, right? Is though we are different in, in, in style, our goal is to handle accurately the word of truth and bring it to you. As Tom calls it, being the waiter trying to get it, the food to the table without messing it up. That's, that's our goal. And, uh, but our text goes on in verse 11, talks talks about these gifting and kind of it, it does sort it into two categories speaking gifts and serving gifts verse 11 whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of god whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which god supplies on this macarthur says whoever speaks will minister through categories of preaching and teaching wisdom knowledge and discernment Whoever serves will minister through areas such as, as administration, prayer, mercy, or helps. And those who speak must communicate not human option, or human opinion rather, but the utterances of God as revealed only in Scripture. Similarly, any serving gift is to be exercised not by human power, but by the strength which God supplies. And why do we serve? Verse 11 continues, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter breaks out into doxology right in the middle of his text. And through Jesus Christ, God can only be glorified if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the heart of a believer is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Keeping in context the setting of Peter's letter in a hostile world, I want to share, to share J.C. Ryle's observations on holy living that still apply to all of us today living amongst today's hostilities. 
J.C. Ryle says, a holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on the things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of life that now is, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and a pilgrim traveling home. No, Christ did not come in 1988. We are still here. We're still in the same position as those that Peter wrote to in his lifetime. But because Christ is coming, we need to think, we need to pray, we need to love, we need to be hospitable, and we need to use our gifts. Several years ago, Tim Challies wrote a most wonderful article entitled, Four Reasons to be Glad that Life is Short. Summarized, it says, because time is short, we will not sin for long. We will not labor for long. We will not suffer for long. We will not wait for long. Though we've been focused today on our service as we wait the coming of the Lord, truth be told, it will not be long until we're all with him. If he has not yet come for us. Listen to Challies in his article. Because time is short, we will not wait for long. Godly people will not be out of heaven for long. While the angels are blessed to enjoy God's presence now, we remain imprisoned in our bodies for at least a little while longer. Here we desire God more than we enjoy him, but the time is short and in mere hours, days or years we will see him face to face then we will leave behind all the difficulties of this world to rest in him forever faith gives us an interest in god but only death brings the full inheritance those foreign wagons came rattling for old jacob so they could carry him to joseph in the same way death comes rattling to the christian but only to carry him to the Father. Yes, the end of all things is near. The end of what? The end of the wait. In the meantime, let's be busy in the wait. Father God, we thank you for these words that help set our compass on just what we are to be about as we wait. And Father, we thank you that the imminence of Christ is, is near. And if he doesn't come for us, we will be with him soon, with you soon. Lord, our lives are indeed a of vapor. Some of our vapors are in various stages, but Father, it is short. So 
So help us keep focused on the day, your return. Help us be these stewards taking care of your things. Lord Jesus, we just pray that we would think rightly as we consider the, the events of today, the hostility. It's a hostile world today as it was in Peter's day. New people, but same hatred. You know all about that, and we praise you that you do. Help us be thinkers. Help us be prayers. Father, being anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to you. And the peace that you give, may it guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to love. Lord, help us to overlook because of love, because of your love for us. Help us to love others that same way, overlooking their sins. Help us be hospitable, putting aside our own selfishness to be able to really serve one another. And Father, may we be using our giftedness, Father, to, to give you glory and praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.